With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod, Pina of Sports Illustrated. Michael, one thing that you and I have not really chatted about yet is this upcoming concept of the 2021 all-star weekend or all-star game or whatever they're able to put together as we record this on thursday morning uh, there's a report by the athletic that things are getting closer to official in terms of hosting an all-star game in atlanta on march 7th it's sort of the the one sunday in the middle that uh, mid-season break that they had sort of set aside and we're still waiting for lots of details in terms of uh, where are they going to hold it? Exactly what building is going to host the All-Star Weekend? We do know the players are very interested in having some of the money generated by the event go towards COVID-19 relief and uh, historically black colleges uh, and universities as well. Um, and the reason why they're looking at Atlanta, of course, is because of the proximity to TNT, which hosts All-Star Weekend and is based in Atlanta as well. So those are kind of the general concepts that we know uh, about All-Star Weekend. We also understand Trying to host it during the pandemic in, in definitely increases risks rather than just having kind of two teams coming into a market to play each other. You've got 24 players coming from, you know, probably 20 different locations all arriving in the same spot and then going their separate ways afterwards, which could definitely present uh, some increased, uh, you know, risk of spread. I'm curious, just you know, stepping back from a logistical standpoint and thinking about how they would play this thing out, are you in favor of having an All-Star Weekend? I know NBA Twitter seems like it's adamantly opposed to it. The same people who are upset now are probably the exact same people who will be watching on March 7th, I would imagine, at least a lot of them. Um, but thumbs up or thumbs down? If the, the NBA League office or the players came to you, Michael Pina, and said, all right, should we do this thing, what do you say? I see both sides here, uh, as I typically do. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of All-Star Weekend. I love the dunk contest more than life itself. Uh, so, you know, the 
the the likelihood of not having that this year is would be a bummer for me personally but like i also 100% get the um the downside of holding this together where you have people traveling to atlanta and i'm sure that there would be you know uh, obviously safety protocols enforced uh, aggressively by the league as as best they can but you just kind of look at it and you step back and you're just like why, why is this happening and i like that they are trying to raise money for hbcus and other good causes that's obviously a really good thing but it's just it seems very risky and i kind of also look at it from the point of view of this is an opportunity for players to have a break physically and mentally from this season, which no one is really having a, a, a great time uh, enduring. So that also is a downside, I think, for players. Um, uh, and De'Aaron Fox is one player who has pointed out just how, I mean, he called it flat out stupid um, to do it during a pandemic to have this game to hold an event. Um, which I, uh, you know, I agree with. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's like it's mixed for me to be to be honest. Um, I, I think that players who have played really well throughout the first half of the season deserve to be honored, and we can nominally call them all stars and not necessarily have a game. But I get why the league is doing this. Yeah, so first things first, the most important thing to me was that they named All-Stars, right? And they are going through this All-Star voting process. We saw it, uh, the first ballot of fan returns were released uh, Thursday morning right before we taped. Michael, you actually had Kevin Durant as the leading vote-getter, followed by LeBron James, Steph Curry, Giannis, and then Joel Embiid as your top five. Uh, you know, Tatum trailing well behind those guys. I'm sure you saw that, uh, Michael. Uh, Tough showing uh, for the green beer-loving Celtics fans. They got to get on Twitter and get a little bit more uh, hyper-focused on their retweeting. But um, the most important thing from a historical perspective is to name All-Stars. You don't want to have you know, a gap in a player's year. Let's say he made 10 straight. Now he doesn't make this one. Or you don't want to have a guy shortchanged over the course of his career. He was supposed to be a six-time All-Star, but instead he only was a five-time All-Star. So they got that part right. Now, in terms of weighing, do you do it or do you not do it? um, You know, the fun parts of All-Star Weekend in terms of the networking and all the side events and the the brand showcases and all that stuff are all just kind of out the window, right? And so I think for anyone who would be interested in covering it from a media perspective or uh, a fan trying to attend it or whatever else, like the interest in this game has plummeted or trying to attend this showcase is just non-existent, right? So it basically boils down to how much television revenue can you generate for this game and I agree mm-hmm. that it's, you know, risky and you're kind of taking on all this, uh, you know, th- this potential for, you know, for it to backfire and everything else. But every game they've been doing so far this season has carried this risk. And this one, you know, is actually going to be generating, uh, you know, a lot of television revenue. A lot of people watch the All-Star game, even though the diehards like to make fun of how bad the quality is. People like to see the best guys on the court all at the same time. And uh, they like to see them hanging out and interacting and everything else, especially on... Uh, you know, a a Sunday afternoon or evening when it's not football season and they don't have a lot of other competition at that point uh, of the calendar, right? So uh, you add all those things up. It's like if you're going to play a Pelicans-Timberwolves game on a Tuesday uh, evening when, you know, 20,000 people are going to watch it, you should probably try to find a way to secure an all-star game so you can get your players there, put it on, and, and make the television money. If it's all about money, 
which I think that we could say this season has been primarily, uh, you know, driven uh, by the pursuit of profits, you might as well pursue as many profits as possible. I guess that would be my stand if they had asked me. And obviously, you're going to need to do it in the most careful way possible. It sounds like there's going to be some enhanced safety protocols for the players arriving from their home markets to All-Star Weekend. I would imagine there's not going to be a lot of Magic City uh, on Saturday night, Michael. I would really hope not, um, that, that they would be able to kind of get the players in Atlanta as quickly as possible and get them turned around and get right back out of Atlanta as quickly as possible. I think if you do it in that manner, uh, it's worth doing. Is the game going to be an amazing quality? No. Are the players going to be griping about being exhausted You know, during the second half of the season? I can absolutely see that. And by the way, I think we should brace for that. I mean, we've been watching basketball for an awful long time, Michael. You and I, you and I have been talking about this season for like six weeks now. We have so much more basketball to go, and there's going to be so many games that are pointless for you know five, six, seven, eight teams once they are eliminated from the play-in chase. What are their lives going to be like bouncing from hotel room to hotel room, playing games in a pandemic, risking the coronavirus? for contests that aren't even going to have an impact in the standings. I mean, those kinds of typical dreary, you know, late March, early April games that we're used to seeing teams just not really care about in a normal season. What's the effort level and and player buy-in going to look like once we reach that stage of this season? I think it's important for us to have that on our radar. And I do think we're going to hear more comments like De'Aaron Fox, uh, you know, what he had to say, not only about All-Star Weekend, but just about this entire endeavor, the deeper that we go. Remember, it was just over the one-month mark of the bubble where players started to get antsy. They've been dealing with these health protocols, the, 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 the tightened ones that don't really let them go out on the road and don't really let them have a good time. They've been dealing with that for a while now, and eventually people are going to get sick of it. Yeah, um, hmm. I think it's really a bummer how we started talking about All-Star and then you had to bring up the doldrums of the later season, regular season games where, you know, we're going to get like Max Struess versus Alec Burks as a highlight. I I just, I'm really dreading those games where the starters are benched and yeah, that's, man, you brought me to a very dark place here, Ben. I I really, I'm not excited about that. Well, let's Um, let's bring you back to joy and say... (laughs) Should they do a dunk contest as part of All-Star Weekend? Because they're still kind of talking, and I know there's been some discussion. Are they going to try to have some of these other skills events? Should they do a dunk contest? And if so, like, do you have a dream field? Do you have certain candidates you want to see in it? Um, You know, again, this is another layer where it's like, well, the dunk contest is really completely unnecessary. You could host just an All-Star game and be fine. But at the same time, you can make the argument, well, if we're all going to Atlanta for an all-star game, we might as well have a dunk contest because people love the dunk contest, right? Um, the downside with the dunk contest in particular, though, would be the lack of crowd, you know? I mean, if it's just going to be courtside Karen and her husband, and that's like pretty much everybody there in Atlanta, <laughs> that's not the kind of re- response I want. I mean, I want thousands of people booing Dwayne Wade when he just hands the title to Derek Jones Jr. and completely snubbing Aaron Gordon, one of the most disgraceful moments in the history of the NBA. <laughs> like the crowd reaction part's really important, right, Michael? And so if you try to have a dunk contest in an empty gym, it's going to look an awful lot like, uh, you know, just a, a random guy on Instagram trying to go viral with some cool, uh, you know, this some cool new move. Yeah, no, you're exactly spot on. I can't imagine a dunk contest in an empty arena. I mean, I get the most joy, I think, from just watching the players' reactions. So we'll 
probably still have that, I would imagine. Like, are those players going to be socially distanced? Or are they going to be able, you know, like, when there's a crazy dunk, everyone rushes the court. Like, is that going to be allowed? I, I don't know. And then watching players do that wearing masks, it would just be pretty off-putting i would say well you know how lebron Uh, just has tequila ads on his instagram story like every single day now what if they just had like a (laughs) a very safely socially distanced pre-game tequila session and all the players were super hyped up and then they were the only crowd and we got you know some over-the-top reactions fueled by lebron's latest uh, brand crossover what do you think that's a great idea. It reminds me of the 2004 Boston Red Sox passing around Crown Royal before they took <laughs> the field to beat the <laughs> New York Yankees. Like that's that's really what we're we're going for here, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, this is getting pretty dark as we're discussing how we can actually make this thing good. We're, <laughs> we're really pulling out all the stops. So would you want one, though, even in these weird circumstances? Let's say it is an empty gym or there's only like a couple thousand fans. I think in that State Farm Arena building, if they do play it there, right now they're allowing something like 1,500 to 1,800 fans, somewhere in that range. Um, mm-hmm. So that's not zero, right? And you could get some celebrities there. You know, maybe you get Offset and 2 Chains and, and some other... <laughs> Atlanta uh, luminaries, and you know it's something. What are you, why are you laughing, Michael? This is a good idea. Yeah, no, it's it's because it's hilarious. That's why I'm laughing. What about um, Lil I Baby? Think, yeah, I mean that's sure. that's his turf. Harden, uh, no, Harden would be very excited. I, Harden might even participate in the dunk contest if Lil Baby was there standing courtside. You, I um, mean, Lil Baby could have a whole row for his honey buns. It'd be great. Just line them right I, up, and he could actually maybe if he was wearing a mask and everything else, he could deliver the the slam dunk contest champion their reward money in bricks of cash. What do you, I mean, this there there is possibilities here, Michael, if we brainstorm this. Yeah, I don't want to digress, but the fact that I don't know any Lil Baby songs makes me feel like I'm 77 wow. years old. Wow, um, yeah. wow. But, but um, no, I'm not even going to put you on the spot and ask you to name your five favorites, so just settle down over there. But I think that uh, for the dunk contest, it, it would matter to me who is participating before I you know got really pumped. Like... The one player I think we both can agree that we want to see is Zion. And if Zion is like, I will do the dunk contest, then yeah, I'm going to be watching the dunk contest on the edge of my seat. Uh, And that would be freaking awesome. Um, But besides him, I honestly, you know, the dunk, we talk about this every year with the dunk contest and star power and who's going to participate and who's not. I don't know, besides Zion, like who could really captivate me, who could really captivate like a national audience. So like, I, I don't, I don't know. I like that. I think that that would be like a really key component here. Right. Yeah. I would say a uh, drip too hard. Uh, we paid uh, you, you, you Googled this. I know you did stop close friends, emotionally scarred. No little baby's good workout music, Michael. I, I know I didn't necessarily remember the names of all those songs, but you know, I could sing along if they came on. <laughs> Um, sure. No, I Lil Baby is the second best baby out right now. I would say number one, Da Baby. Number two, Lil Baby. That's a very controversial take that's gotten me in some very, very hot, take, hot, yeah. hot water with listeners in the past. Um, I'm sorry. I was down a, a baby rabbit hole. What was your question? I know you were. Yeah, I know. You weren't listening to anything I was saying. I was saying that uh, Zion, if Zion participates in the dunk contest, then I'm for it. 
Well, anything else, I'm just not. I can't get. I can't get pumped. So here's the problem: they already had issues with attendance for the dunk contest last year after the judging fiasco. Remember, John Morant kind of came out and was like, "Oh, this is terrible." I mean, I'm not sure exactly how he framed it, but basically said he wasn't sure he was going to do it in the future because of how sketchy the judging was. The two guys you would want are Zion and Ja, and I think they're both (laughs) kind of like, "Yeah, I don't know if this uh, contest has enough credibility." And that was with fans and with the normal judges and everything else. So I think that the recruiting on the dunk contest part might be difficult. At the same time, you can get players like a Derek Jones Jr. and have a good dunk contest. You know, I mean, he's really talented. He and they're always you know innovating, coming up with new dunks. So even if it's no namers, I guess the problem is if these are extra people bring bought, uh, brought to the event. Does that increase the risk? And therefore, you know, it it turns into this calculation of is it really worth doing? I guess in general, I am so pro dunk contest that if they were going to salvage any of the events, I would say it would be that one. Although it might be easier for them to do a three point contest because they could just have the actual all star level players like do a three point contest. Like you could have Katie, Kyrie, Steph, James Harden do a three point contest, right? So would you be in favor of that? Like if they were just sort of like, well, we're not really doing these events, but we're just kind of making the All-Stars do two things and calling it good. What about that? (laughs) If the All-Stars participate in a dunk contest, then it would be the greatest dunk contest of all time, or at least the most memorable. Uh, Three-point shootout. Would you have Jokic in that, or who would you pick? Ooh, yeah. Um, Hmm. Very good question. I, you know, I'm looking at the uh, the the fan vote right now, which I want to talk to you about in a second. But you know, there's some names on here that are really piquing my interest. Um, you have, uh, let's see here, Andrew Wiggins has cracked the top ten in the Western Front Court. Let's get him in the dunk contest. Um, no, I, I don't really like Ja and Zion are really the two. Yeah. Now that job we're by, looking by at you. this list, there really aren't a yeah. lot of great dunkers. I mean, Giannis was not very good in the dunk contest when he did no. it. Um, you know, KD. Could he like train no. and practice and, <laughs> no. and come up with some no. sort of like weird like limb dunk where like all of his arms, his legs and arms are contorting and it just looks crazy? I mean, possibly, but I mean, Kyrie could do a layup contest personally. What about Jalen? Does he have dunk contest dunks or no? Well, no, no, he sure, absolutely, he would dominate. Um, I don't want the th- the other thing that we should mention is like the the risk of injury, which is something that is, I guess present every year but i feel like could be um increased this season this weird season the other player i just want to mention real quick is lebron like if lebron was ever gonna do it oh, this is the year this is this is the year let's do it come on yeah LeBron. two, two chains go. and courtside karen are waiting lebron you've got to like entertain the crowd this is your time <laughs> um the guy who i think would actually win it would be paul george what do you think did he already – does he have one already? Or did he compete in one? I remember them turning the lights off in the arena. He was, like, glowing in the dark. Do you remember that? Oh, of course. I was there. But I'm, didn't, yeah. didn't the glow-in-the-dark thing not really work for a little bit of it? It didn't. Yeah. It didn't. It didn't. Well, technology's come a long <laughs> way, Michael. It's 2021, all right? You can just get Elon Musk on it. We'll be fine. Um, yeah, what about Damanis Sabonis? Is he a sneaky candidate for a dunk contest all-star 
uh, champion. I mean, maybe you could get like a slightly bent rim and have him rip the rim off the hoop. You know, like he he has some pre- pretty big force to him. I mean, it's not going to be the most like high quality technique dunks. I'm just trying to you know maybe liven up the affair a little bit with some. No, that's that's a really good call. You would need to fly in Daniel Tice to be a defender, and then we got something really cooking. Um, but like no nobody as like a, a, a standing in for resistance. I, I don't know if Domas would have the energy. Yeah, um, you know, the other- in general, I'm against giving the players the vaccine early. But if we're willing to have Daniel Tice sacrifice himself as a dunk contest poster victim, I would be interested in, in trying to line up a vaccine for that. Maybe he can call Bill Russell. <laughs> the other, what, the last player before we move on from this, uh, Bam Adebayo, who I remember I, w- I interviewed um, Derek Jones Jr. for a story I wrote about Bam in 2019, and he told me that him and Bam would have post-practice dunk contests, and you know, according to Derek Jones Jr., he won all of them, but he said that Bam was the only player in the league who he would consider more athletic than himself. So that's another guy who I would really love to see. Yeah, Bam has that young Dwight Howard kind of, you know, freaky athleticism for a big guy. He's also another person who was regularly dunked on Tice's head, as I'm sure you recall from the Eastern Conference Finals. So maybe there's something there. <laughs> maybe we're really onto something. Michael, I'm just going to read some of these results quickly, and I want to know your takeaways. Maybe it's like overrated, underrated snubs, whatever you think it would be, right? So in the Western Conference front court, uh, the, the leading vote getters are LeBron, Jokic, Kawhi Leonard, Anthony Davis, Paul George. That's the top five. Uh, in the Western Conference back uh, backcourt, it's Curry, Luka, Lillard, Ja, and Donovan Mitchell. In the Eastern Conference front court, it's KD, Giannis, Embiid, Tatum, Butler. And then in the Eastern Conference backcourt, it's Beal, Kyrie, Harden, Jalen, and then Zach Levine. I got to say, Michael, one of the biggest takeaways to me is Jason Tatum and and Jalen Brown basically getting about half of the number of votes of the top three guys in those categories. You were trying to make an argument for Tatum as a starter. Ludicrous argument this year. But Jalen Brown, strong Brown, strong argument to be a starter. He can only get 590,000 votes, and Kyrie's got more than a million. James Harden's got more than a million. Somehow Bradley Beal's got 1.2 million, which makes no sense whatsoever. I would say the Celtics fans really are letting everybody down right now. I think that's one of the biggest takeaways from this entire, uh, in th- this entire release. You know, I, I really enjoy how uh, you turn two players from the same team being top five in their respective categories for an all-star vote into a negative. That is a true talent on your part. So Don't you agree? Bravo. Come on, Michael. No, I, no. I mean, Tatum finishing fourth and bead Giannis KD in front of him, there's, that's that's that makes sense and then you know Beal Kyrie who's just super popular I don't think he's better than Jalen but very popular um and Harden ahead of Jalen like yeah sure whatever that makes sense I still think Jalen deserves to start and probably will start but you know I think that that is uh you know it's the only team besides the Lakers that have two guys in the top five or wait a minute no the Clippers also do but those are the two best teams in the NBA so like you know it's okay the Celtics are doing great yeah, Celtics fans, step up. You know, Michael, it's a pandemic. What else are you doing? Vote a little bit more. I, I just don't think those gaps should be that big because I think Jalen Brown 
should be starting um, in the Eastern Conference backcourt. I do not understand how how does Bradley Beal have 1.27 million votes? That's insane to me. I mean, it's almost as many as Luca. Are you kidding? You know what is the rationale there? Yeah, that 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 did stand out to me for sure. I think the other there's two things that I tweeted this, um, so I'm stepping on it a little bit. But the two things that first stood out to me. The fact that KD has the most votes over LeBron, over Giannis, over Luca, over Steph, like that is that's pretty interesting. I got to be honest. So um, one possible explanation there, apparently they have opened up a voting channel in China that was a little bit different from last year. And in general, I understand the voting for All Stars is actually way up this year compared to last year. Um, they did, I guess, add Twitter back into the mix as a voting platform, and I think that probably has something to do with it. But you know, the Nets are owned by Joe Tsai, sort of a, you know, there, there is a, a link there to that Chinese market. So it's possible that both KD, Kyrie, and James Harden all having more than a million votes and KD being the leading vote getter is bu- being fueled at least in part by that. Because it, it is interesting because I don't feel like KD is dominating the discussion here right now, uh, you know, the, the national no. NBA discussion to the point where he would have more votes than LeBron. So I do feel like that there there could be some truth to that explanation. But it's only a theory, Michael. I'm just throwing it out there. No, I like that you 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 posited it because it makes sense now that uh, three Nets have more votes than Tatum and Jalen. That's just that you just explained it to all of our listeners. So thank you for that. Well, that's that's um, the thing. The Nets are a global brand, and the Celtics are kind of a regional brand. That is one of the worst things you've ever said out loud in your entire life. Um, I, I think that the other thing that really you're stands so, out to You're me. so close to just turning your mic off and packing it up and going home today, so I'll, I'll relent. What else stood out? So, you know, one of the feel-good stories for me um, this entire season has been Mike Conley. And, like, Mike Conley not having – I don't know how many votes he got because he's not listed here uh, in the Western Conference guards category. But, you know, who is listed? Clay Thompson. Clay Thompson has almost 100,000 votes, and he's 10th. And so, that you know, shout-out to Clay Thompson, who is impossible not to like. Uh, I really enjoyed him on the Wizards uh, broadcast last week. He is hilarious. I miss him dearly um, on the court and off the court. But Mike Conley, come on. Like, we need to get Mike Conley in the All-Star game. This is the year. Like, I I really hope that he makes it because he's been one of the best players on one of the best teams. And it would be a travesty if he did not qualify. It's going to be really hard for him to make it. I mean, even if they're the one seed, are they definitely going to get three All-Stars? Don't you feel like he's going to just naturally be third on their pecking order? Or are you suggesting he should be in over... Mitchell or Gobert? I I mean, it's a really good question. I'm not saying that Conley is more valuable than either of those two guys, for sure. But I feel like Mike Conley has been a steadier hand than Donovan. Obviously, his ceiling is not as high. That goes without saying. I feel like he's been a steadier hand, though, throughout and more consistent throughout the entire season. And... You know, Gobert made it last year. That was awesome. Um, maybe we can just like pass along some of the the joy to one of his teammates. And like, I, is Rudy Gobert even a shoe in to be an All Star this year? Like, I I don't know. I, it, so yeah, give it to give it to Conley. Come on. Yeah. So my theory on this is like. Neither one of them is going to get voted in as a starter, Mitchell and Gobert. So then the coaches are no. going to just do the standings thing, and then they're going to be like, well, 
you know, who do we associate with that organization? They're just going to kind of, you know, make the the lazy pick of Gobert and then Mitchell, and then those are the guys who are going to get in, right? And and maybe, you know, worst case scenario, only one of those two gets in. I, I think they deserve at least two. I, I can't really see Utah getting three unless they just continue just blowing everybody off the court, and it's like they're winning, I don't know, 21 out of 23 games or something like that. Then maybe, but I feel like he's going to get stuck a little bit. One of my big takeaways from these results it feels like they put in a hype beast filter, Michael. Like some of the guys who used to really do amazing, right? And it was like, oh God, they're going to like crash the the voting system. This is going to be terrible. Like no Lonzo Ball, no LaMelo Ball, which is actually really mm. surprising to me. Zion got 400,000 votes. I mean, he only got 140,000 more votes than Christian Wood, right? I mean, he's down there in the Andrew Wiggins territory. I mean, Jimmy Butler's barely played this season. He has almost as many as Zion. So I'm not trying to say Zion underperformed because 400,000 is still a lot. He's probably like, you know, top, what, 15 or 20 overall. But it's a lot less than I expected. I was kind of bracing for a situation where Zion was like above Jokic and it was all really awkward. You know what I mean? Um, and I, I, feel, I don't know if maybe real, some I, of the, the hype has kind of uh, fallen off of him, I guess. I feel like the, the narrative with Zion is skewing more negative, even though I, last night, I don't even know what his stats were, but I saw that they were absolutely ridiculous on national television. Right, but that's be, that's uh, like the 30-plus basketball dork narratives, right? I mean, most of the people who are voting, I'm assuming, are... 16 to 22 year old people right and i'm not mm-hmm. sure that they care so much about that I, I thought it was mostly just kind of a reflection of youtube interest a lot of the times well carmelo's on this list as you said christian wood's on this list andrew wiggins is on this list um so there there are some Derek rose is on this list uh eighth in the east <laughs> among guards <laughs> like it's very it's very bizarre um so I, I don't know who's voting i don't know how that all this all this kind of all figures out but another really interesting thing i just want to point out is i i assume that trey young would be a little yeah, bit higher he's a high beast guy ca- too yeah yeah, he's behind Zach Levine, which is that's uh, he's like over a hundred thousand behind Zach Levine. That is that is stunning. I'm not gonna lie, and the Hawks are good. <laughs> like now, the Hawks are actually a good team. When and, and Trey Young started last year uh, uh, largely on the strength of the fan vote, so either he has lost himself mm-hmm. some fans, or there's some change to these procedures. Who knows? Um, all right, we've probably dissected those uh, enough. I'm going to make a prediction. By the end of it, KD will not have more votes than LeBron. I think LeBron will end up as the number one vote getter. Um, I just that seems like it always happens. Doesn't somebody always challenge LeBron in the early returns, and then the LeBron stands come on strong down the stretch, and he winds up being number one overall? I think Steph might have got him one year, but other than that, I'm not so sure. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. 
You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash shot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. We're talking about a lot of these stars, Michael. There was a game on Tuesday night that had a bunch of them, Clippers and uh, Nets. The Nets take it uh, down the stretch. Uh, It was a close and tight game. They kind of wanted to blow it there in the last minute or two, but they held on and survived. I don't want to go back and, like, you know, dive too deeply into that particular game just because it was a couple nights ago. But, you know, some people were calling it a finals preview, and clearly these are two of the, the top favorites in the league. Can you give me just one takeaway on both sides, uh, one about the Clippers, one about the Nets, just something that we should kind of put in the back of our mind or, or kind of save in our pocket for down the road if these two teams do wind up meeting? Because we did hear from Kyrie Irving, you know, kind of call it a benchmark game, say they wanted to almost make a statement and let the Clippers know what was going on. Uh, they, they felt like they raised their game on national TV to, to do that. Oh, you're calling BS? You don't think that's true? I, I don't know. Um, well, you, their defense was still absolutely a train wreck. But you did see him go for 39, right, Michael? I mean, he was going pretty hard. I, I did. That's what Kyrie does, and that's you know good for him, wonderful. Um, I, I'll start with the Clippers. Uh, one of the most interesting slash frustrating slash whatever it was a random regular season game at the beginning of February takeaways that I had was that Reggie Jackson played 35 minutes and Serge Ibaka only played 20. I know that the Nets like to go small and they started Jeff Green at the five in this game. But, you know, I wrote about the Clippers, a potential lineup that we haven't really seen this year, the Kawhi, Paul George, Nick Batum, Marcus Morris, Ibaka, Fivesome that I just think is has the potential to be the best group lineup in the entire NBA, and we should see it in the playoffs a little bit more. Like I just I think that that is an impenetrable group, and it's like the definition epitomizes, I should say. Uh, positionless basketball without any of the drawbacks that you kind of get when you downsize a little bit. Um, but, you know, it, again, it was the regular season, and Ty Lue is really not focused about uh, anything but building his team until the playoffs. And so maybe he didn't want to have, I mean, he didn't want to, you know, show any film of this group to a potential opponent down the line at some point. I have no idea. Maybe he wanted to just rest Ibaka. A little bit. Abaka's minutes are down this season pretty dramatically. Uh, so I just thought that that was kind of interesting to me. And I know that's not a sexy takeaway. <laughs> I'm talking about Reggie Jackson in a game that had five of like the most exciting players on the planet. But that was one that I just had watching, especially in the fourth quarter. 
Yeah, I mean, they can't guard the point of attack. It's a problem. Look, it was a problem against uh, Luka Doncic in the first round of the playoffs, and they were all scrambled, and Doc was kind of surprised in the moment. Why can't we at least limit his passing ability or, or you know, at least kind of like turn him into a more of a one-dimensional player? It was a problem in the second round when they got absolutely cooked by Jamal Murray, uh, and it was a problem trying to slow down Kyrie Irving. And I know they've had some situations here this season where they've tried to switch Kawhi Leonard onto point guards, you know, just to kind of stop the bleeding. I don't think this is a situation that necessarily gets resolved when Patrick Beverly's back. You know, I, I think that their mm. message coming out of that game was, oh, we just wish we had Pat. Patrick Beverly's not going to lock down Kyrie Irving and prevent him from getting 39 points. Kyrie's going to go right by him. Look, I mean, Patrick Beverly is a really good player. He's a much better defensive player than a Reggie Jackson, but he is not that reliable night-to-night, you know, just lockdown clamp an elite ball handler guy anymore. Uh, he's, you know, on the other side of 30. He's dealing with constant injury issues in and out of the lineup. He's missed a lot of time recently. And if you just try to ask him to do that, like he's going to be better than Reggie for sure. I mean, there's there's been no doubt when Reggie Jackson's on the court over the last nine months that he's the weakest link for the Clippers. But uh, it's a big-time problem. And it's, it's been a recurring problem. And I, I'm not sure even if they go to that super versatile lineup uh, group that you're mentioning, you know, when you play positionless basketball, you're most vulnerable at the one and the five, right? Because those are, you know, the the positions that maybe uh, your, your body types aren't matching up with perfectly. So if you're trying to go with like five wings, for example, if there's a, a big bodied center in the middle, he probably is going to cause you some problems and maybe a, a jitterbug point guard who's really quick off the dribble mm. and can, you know, break down your defense. He's going to uh, cause you problems too. So they're going to have to figure out an answer for that. I think the good news for the Clippers is that a lot of their Western Conference foes don't necessarily have like elite threats in that spot, right? Like Dennis Schroeder is good off the dribble, but he's not probably going to win a playoff series by himself off the dribble. Jamal Murray was in, it's sensational, uh, you know, against the Clippers last year. What are the odds he's going to do that again in that particular matchup? And then you look at Utah. I mean, their guards, they, they can do that every once in a while, but they're definitely, their attack is much more three-point oriented. You know, Donovan Mitchell is going to cause them some problems. I'm just not sure he's going to step up and, and be like the decisive player in a playoff series. But if they were matched up in the finals against both Kyrie and James Harden and they can't stop either one of those guys off the dribble, I mean, that could wind up being a fatal flaw for them. And I just don't think Patrick Beverly is going to solve it. So that was one of my takeaways on the Clippers side. Um, uh -huh. And you know, again, it's, you know, February, but it was concerning. I mean, how easy he was getting. I mean, well, Kyrie's just slaloming past Kawhi and then Paul George and Dipsy doing around Nicholas Batum. And it's just like, OK, like, are, is anyone going to be able to stop this guy at all? Or is he just going to do whatever he wants? Yeah, I mean, you make a really good point about how the one and the five are the two positions where you're you're compromised when you do go positionless. But that's kind of why this unit is a little unique. Like at the five with Ibaka and having a little bit more rim protection, as you said, like Kyrie was just skating around the court, getting to the rim, like unfurling these layups out of nowhere that you know only he and like the history of the sport can can execute. Um, so, I, you know, that's just like a really minor quibble. Um, but I guess like to the, the one thing I'd say to to kind of push back a little bit on what you said about how if, you know, they face Harden and Kyrie, who are they going to guard? It's like, OK, well, and this leads me a little bit to the Nets point, like who on the Nets is going to guard Kawhi? And Paul George, like that's kind of the bigger. Well, issue was for Paul me. George like, a problem for them? I mean, he came out of the game for like the 300th time in his career, 
saying he was disrespected by a lack of free throw attempts. And when you're a jump shooter and you've always been a jump shooter and you don't go to the basket and you're not as creative off the dribble as a uh, as a Kyrie or a James Harden, when you don't have the same high-level technique of foul drawing like a Kevin Durant, you're not going to get to the free throw line as often as those guys. And at some point, you know, it's like, Michael, if you're trying to lose weight and you know, you just get the same result day after day after day from the scale. You can blame the scale and freak out, trash the scale, throw it out your window. All this thing's lying to me, blah, blah, blah. Or you can look within and say, you know what? Too many ding-dongs and donuts last night. That's why I'm not losing weight. Maybe I am the problem, <laughs> right? And that's just kind of the situation where Paul George is in. Like, you, know, you, you can get so mad at the officials for a decade Eventually, you're going to have to realize it's the nature of your game that's contributing to it. I didn't think he posed that many problems for Brooklyn, frankly. And I think that Kawhi Leonard played very well. He was the Clippers' best player in that particular game. But um, I'm taking Brooklyn's big three over the Clippers' big two uh, in tr- from a trustworthiness factor uh, in, in a playoff setting and everything else. Like I'd rather have Kevin Durant than Kawhi Leonard. I would rather have to match up with Kawhi than match up with Kevin Durant. And I don't really know how Brooklyn's going to contain those guys off the off the dribble. What do you think? Uh, you know, we're we're now reached the point in the podcast where you got to slander Kawhi. It's okay. It's like a, it's a it's a twice weekly it's thing. It's not with a you, slander but... to say that Kevin Durant's better than Kawhi. Come on, you know Katie's better than Kawhi. The the All Star vote getters eh. taught you that. Eh, eh. I don't know. I thought that uh, Kawhi. What do you have? Like thirty three, and he. He like left some points on the board. Still, he was just tremendous in that game. Yeah, um, left a win on but, the board too. Okay, <laughs> okay. Um, I guess like the other point I want to say about the uh, the Nets is just that you know they shot eighty one percent at the rim. They shot fifty six percent from the mid range. They shot forty two percent from behind the three point line. Like their offense was absolutely ridiculous. Um, it was also totally unsustainable, and they barely won the basketball game. Like, it was a one-possession game, basically, down the stretch. Um, and I look at that, and I'm kind of like, you know, all season long, Durant and Kyrie have been unreal scorers. They take very difficult shots. Their effective field goal percentage, despite where they take their shots and how they take their shots, is very, very high. I just wonder, like, in a playoff series, there will be games where one of them is off, maybe there's a game where both of them are off, and this is why defense matters. It just does. I understand that Harden's there too. Harden has a very checkered postseason career, as uh, you and I both know. So, yeah, like, we're both scarred. And I, and you, so your, your point yeah, here is well taken. Your point here is well taken. Basically, you have to operate at an A plus level offensively if you're the Nets, because otherwise you're going to yeah. lose it with your. Your C minus in a generous grading curve, more like a, mm-hmm. a D minus defense. I think that's absolutely true from a stability and two way balance factor. There's no question teams like the Clippers, Lakers, even the Jazz, probably even the Milwaukee Bucks, and a number of other teams you would kind of put, you know, from a two way perspective, Philadelphia 76ers, you would put ahead of Brooklyn. Um, I think the question really comes down to sustainability. I mean, it's very possible this is the greatest offense we've ever seen. You know, by the numbers, it's looking that way. If they and I don't know if that means they're going to be able to sustain as well as they played against the Clippers, but they could sustain 
a higher level of offense from an efficiency standpoint than we've ever seen in the past. And they also have a bunch of guys who can get to the free throw line, which is going to be very helpful in the playoffs and guys who can hit their free throws in the playoffs as well. So they've just got weapons on weapons. They've been just a fascinating team to watch here um, over the last couple of weeks, especially Michael, my biggest takeaway from Brooklyn, though, it wasn't about the stars. It was about their coach. This was a teaching tape for Steve Nash. I've been real hard on Steve Nash about not being active enough in late game situations. Here he was taking his timeouts. Here he was setting up inbounds plays to get the ball to certain guys so that they could be fouled. Here he was fouling up three on multiple occasions. It was a more controlled experience. Now, it was still kind of chaotic, right? They still almost blew it. But I feel like having uh, you know that, that guiding hand from the bench late in that game was actually really helpful. And they, in a way, won the chess match. I mean, you saw Nicholas Batum miss a free throw in in one of those situations. You saw the Clippers blow a defensive coverage and lose Jeff Green leaking out behind the defense. Um, It was more stable. It was more thoughtful. And I just thought it was a a more controlled experience. And so it's one of those things where it's like Steve Nash had a game to build on here, Michael. And and I thought that was... um, you know, stood in, uh, you know, contrast to some of their other just, you know, crazier, more haphazard games uh, late down the stretch. You know, there's this whole stat going around about the Clippers playing down to their competition. In other words, when they're on national TV playing against good teams, they they play great. And then when they play the Wizards, uh, they just kind of take their foot off the gas. I kind of wonder also, is Steve Nash coaching down to the competition, right? Does he get himself up for these national TV games when he knows all the blowhards are paying attention and maybe he's going to lo- lock in and, <laughs> and, do, and do a little bit more careful coaching? Whereas, you know, hey, Sunday night against the Wizards, whatever, we'll just kind of trick that one off. No one will care. Um, I don't know. Just a theory. What do you think? Yeah, uh, I mean, fouling up three was smart. It probably saved them the game. Um, I think that, you know, after, at the I forget if I texted you this, but at the end of the third quarter, uh, I don't know if you saw, but Nash was motioning for TLC to foul Paul George, and he didn't. And P- Paul George hit a, like a pull-up two from the left wing as time expired, basically. And I was like... Wondering, is that good that Nash knew to, you know, they had a foul to give and he was trying to communicate that to one of his players? Like, that's good, right? But then also the fact that TLC didn't do it, like, is that on the coach or is that just entirely on TLC? Like, I, so I can't, I I can't like decipher whether or not that was a good moment or a bad moment for Nash as a head coach. Well, I think it's good because at least he's putting it on tape that he knows. I mean, there's been some real situations where I'm just like, I don't know if Steve Nash actually knows what he's supposed to be doing right, uh, right now in this season. And so any evidence that like he is like fully aware, not overwhelmed by the moment, I think is good. This leads me to a question we got from Giannis in Greece, and I think it's a really good question. It's similar to what you're describing here with the TLC situation. Giannis writes, I was watching the Mavs Suns game on Monday night and once again witnessed a team give up control at the end of the game and end up losing as a result. This happens constantly in the NBA, and I just don't get it. This is something I saw the Nets do a few weeks back when they let Colin Sexton hit that game tying three at the end of overtime, and perhaps most importantly, something the Spurs did in the 2013 finals that cost them another championship. Why do teams that are up two or three points at the end of games not intentionally foul? If you're up two, you can foul. And worst case scenario, they make both and you call time with the chance to win the game. That seems like a preferable option rather than trying to defend and having Devin Booker knock down a game winner in your face. But okay, I can understand why some coaches would choose to play defense. But why in the name of all that is good and pure in this world do teams up three 
not foul to get the ball back. Think back to those 2013 finals. The Spurs are up three with five seconds left. Instead of intentionally fouling to send LeBron to the line and get the ball back, they not only allowed one three-point shot, but two of them. If they'd fouled intentionally in that possession, the Spurs dynasty would probably have six rings instead of five. This is commonplace in Europe as a strategy, and coaches get crucified when they don't do it. Why don't more NBA teams do this? Giannis, it's an incredible observation. Great question. Um, I am with you. Fouling up three is absolutely the right decision. You know, you, there's been some statistical breakdowns on when you should do it, exactly uh, how you should do it, um, you know, which teams are going to prefer it and all that. I think it's the right move just as a blanket statement. You should try to do it, especially when there's uh, basically one possession's worth of time left on the clock. The main reason why NBA teams don't do this more often it's actually a bad reason. I think it's just a lack of uh, history and familiarity with players dating back decades. This just has not been a standard strategy in the NBA. A lot of players are not taught to do this as they come up. A lot of coaches were reluctant to do it even as recently as 10 years ago because they were worried about some crazy backfire potential where if they fouled, a guy made a free throw that he missed the second one, the ball kicks out, and, and maybe they set themselves up to lose a game uh, in regulation rather than, uh, you know, control it. They were more concerned and wary about the high risk uh, situations that, you know, could result some small percentage of the time, as opposed to the high reward situations that would happen most of the time, like you're describing uh, by maintaining control when you do foul up three. Uh, you know, it's possible to foul up three too early and have too many exchanges go back and forth, in my opinion. So you want to do it uh, at the right time properly. And also, I do think a lot of coaches are worried that if they instruct their players to foul up three, they will foul a jump shooter. And guys are so tricky about getting into their shots so quickly these days that potentially you would put a player on the uh, on the line for three free throws, which would be an absolute disaster in that situation, right? So I think that those are some of the reasons why there's some reluctance to it. I think it also depends a little bit on whether your your team is good at free throws, right? For a team like Brooklyn, they should be fouling up three every single time because they've got amazing free throw shooters in KD, Kyrie, uh, James Harden, and Joe Harris. So like they're never in a situation where it's going to come back to bite them really. Uh, but some other teams with star level guys who aren't as good at free throw shooters, uh, it becomes a little bit more problematic. But this is entirely a culture thing, Giannis. And you're right. Like the NBA should have figured this one out a long time ago. And I do think in, in situations like this year, to, to tie it back to your TLC point, Michael, there's not a lot of practice time. There's not really a lot of shoot around time. In some, some situations, there's no shoot around time. Uh, the amount of coaching that can go on, you know, between games is much less than a typical situation. And so I, I do think there has to be some level of coaching and adjusting on the fly during games, especially for teams that are kind of newly put together this year. And so maybe that's what we're seeing in the case of the Nets, where like they just haven't had enough opportunities to, to put in these kinds of strategies. And it was a real adjustment from them, though, as Giannis pointed out, they did not foul up three and it bit them against Colin Sexton. They do foul up three multiple times against the Clippers, and it worked for them. So we can probably guess what they're going to do going forward. You, uh, yeah, you took basically everything I was going to say out of my mouth, so thank you for that. I will say it's just, <laughs> like, aesthetically, I, I hate it when teams foul uh, intentionally when they're up three. Like, it, 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 it's similar to me to a clear path situation and the league has tried to regulate, you know, trying to get uh, those 
types of fouls out of the game and punishing teams that do it because fast break basketball is very entertaining. And at the end of the day, this is an entertainment product. So like, I want to see a team have a chance to tie a game with a three. That's really fun. Like that's like what three pointers are, are for. That's why it was invented. You want to be able to come back when you have a deficit like that. So I hate it just when I see it. That's not to say that I don't think it's smart strategy, I do think that there are factors, and you really you did a really good job of kind of outlining all of them. Um, in particular, the risk of fouling a guy who's in a shooting motion, and you know you could give up a four point play, you could put him on the line for three shots. It's that I think is a really tough one for defenders who don't want to be you know uh, just caught on an island there making a, a huge mistake. So yeah, that's for sure. And they're also drilled for their entire life. Don't foul jump shooters. Don't foul jump shooters, right? So then mm-hmm. now that there's one random situation when the pressure is up, when the clock is ticking, when you know in a normal year the crowd is going crazy and now all of a sudden you want me to foul a guy who could potentially turn into a jump shooter. I think that's why you see a lot of hesitation. I think sometimes coaches would like to see the foul up three more often than it actually happens because of player reluctance. And um, it's just one of those generational things that it's going to take players being taught to do that here in the United States from an age of like 12 all the way up before it becomes something that is really ingrained in guys' heads because I think they just view it as uh, just you know unnatural uh, in a way, and it's a little bit tricky there. Michael, I want to shift gears here, though, from this hardcore X and O's talk to a little bit lighter subject. You'll remember last week, Michael from Tasmania basically told us that one of his fondest memories of Kobe Bryant was watching the 60-point game, even though it essentially cost him his marriage. And it wasn't maybe that direct, but he did say that he was like in the hospital with his wife and a newborn baby. A nurse came in and he got really freaked out, was yelling at the nurse about everything. Because uh, he was trying to watch the game, and he just kind of pointed out, "Look, this was an inappropriate time for me to be watching basketball," and yet he doesn't regret it because of that great uh, memory. So I put the call out to the open floor globe, and I said, "Guys, what are some uh, situations where you've been in inappropriate situations?" So we got a bunch of responses, and not only that, Michael, we got a very important clarifying note from Michael in Tasmania at the end. All right, so here we go. Derek says, I work as a high school teacher in New Zealand, and for many years, my classroom was the place students would come to watch basketball. I could stream games on my laptop hooked up to my class projector. Usually, I'd have a core group of about 20 students stop by for every lunch period, and we could fit in about two quarters before they had to return to afternoon classes. Obviously, Steven Adams is massive here, and it was 2016 when these lunchtime viewings began to grow in numbers. I sent a picture of my classroom during Game 7 of the Western Conference Finals between OKC and Golden State. And Michael, this picture just has students overflowing. Like, I mean, this looks like the coolest party you've ever seen, right? He goes on, over the lunchtime break, students poured into my class, outnumbering the available chairs. They were standing on desks, climbing up the walls, and letting out a deafening roar with every thunder basket. After lunch, they were meant to return to class, but as the noise had drawn in a few neighboring teachers as well, we all decided to keep watching staff and students together. My class was abandoned. The game, as you know, was a tense affair, and no one was in the mood to talk. I told the group of students watching that if they had an important class, they had to leave, but I wasn't really reinforcing that rule. Eventually, we were visited by the janitor, and we were reminded of fire safety codes. So the viewing party ended abruptly. Incredibly, there were no further reprimands and word of the event never made it to senior leadership. The situation replayed itself two weeks later during game seven of the NBA finals as well. 
So um, definitely inappropriate, uh, you know, putting everyone's health and safety at risk to watch Steven Adams. That's probably not going to happen in too many places other than New Zealand, but just a brilliant story, right, Mike? It's a great story. Uh, can you, like, is there any way for you to tweet out that photo or would that be uh, untoward here and, and get our guy in trouble? Well, I probably could. I mean, I would I, I would prefer to have uh, permission from all their parents first. Not sure I'm going to be able to line that up uh, anytime <laughs> soon. Idea, so yeah. probably won't. But let's say we appreciated the photo. It looked great. And I just love it when uh, basketball communities rally internationally, Michael. It just brings a, a big smile to my face. Paolo writes, I have to say that watching NBA games during lunch here in Australia has always felt inappropriate considering the looks that I get, especially when I declare that I root for the Celtics, not just because no one here has any clue who the Celtics are, but because the word root means something else down under. Paolo, you're just trying to get me to say things that I regret on air. Come on, man. Don't don't do that. Anyway, he continues. I have to say the most inappropriate basketball-related incident that I have subjected myself to was when you guys read my email about Zion and whether he should get his own Jordan brand line. I was ecstatic sharing the news with everyone at work. In my home country of the Philippines, everyone would have been jumping up and down with me, but I happen to live in a country where netball is a thing. So all I got was, so you guys, you emailed a podcast about a shoe. It was super awkward, but then again, who cares? You read my email. That's all that matters at the end of the day. Cheers, guys. More power to you. Michael, have you ever been in that situation in life where you got super excited about something and you kind of looked around and everyone was like, yeah, man, uh, I feel like this is my life every single day, to be honest. No, that's that's my living room for the past 11 months, particularly when Jason Tatum hits a jump shot. My wife looks at me like I'm a complete Neanderthal and it doesn't make me feel good. So I totally relate to what Paolo's saying right here. Paolo, it sounds like you and Michael just can fist bump across the ocean. I mean, this is very similar. It's <laughs> it's great. It's unfortunately, you would kind of hope that Michael's wife would treat him better than your random coworkers do, Paolo, but at least you know you're in good company. All right, Matthew writes, um, <laughs> so while my marriage hasn't fallen apart due to me watching basketball, at least not yet, I was very nearly late to my wedding because I decided to check the score of the Celtics Raptors game seven in the bubble last year, thinking that it would be over, but no, there was still time left. Obviously I had to watch the end given how close it was. And if Fred Van Vliet had sent it to overtime, there is a good chance this story would be quite different and I would have missed the ceremony. Thankfully, he missed, and I got there not as early as I told the venue, but I also wasn't late necessarily, and that was the main thing. Boston got the win, and the wedding went according to plan. All's well that ends well. This is another very Michael Pena-type story. I could absolutely see. I don't know when you got married, Michael, but let's say it was like right in the middle of that KG-era Celtics team. I could see you running around and bashing your head against some basketball stanchions rather than taking your vows just to follow in the footsteps of your idol, Kevin Garnett. So I got married on August 4th for this exact reason. Like when we were talking about <laughs> dates, I was like, it needs to be in August. I don't care when specifically, but it just has to be in the off season because I was thinking ahead of time too. I was thinking about anniversaries that I would have had to have 
probably missed and gotten in a lot of trouble for down the line. So it, it stretched beyond the playoffs, but I, there was absolutely no chance I could get married. And um, I, I should probably just stop talking right now uh, on the off chance that anyone who knows my wife listens to this episode. So I'm just going to leave it there. But August 4th is when I got married. And that's exactly why, because I care too much about the NBA. Yeah. So I got in trouble, Michael, one year because I was complaining Uh, that there was a wedding scheduled for a Michigan football Saturday in Michigan. And I was like, come on, who's going to get married during a Michigan game? This is crazy. And then they reminded me, you know, like fall in Michigan is absolutely beautiful. Saturday is when everyone gets married. What's wrong with you? You're just a degenerate. The football team's not even good anyway. Suck it up and watch the replay later in the afternoon. That's what I did. And I got to say, you know, big picture, Events like weddings are more important than sporting events, Michael. You know, other than the occasional Game 7 that some of these guys are describing, it's really hard to to justify to people who aren't sports fans this idea that, you know, like Michigan, Indiana in mid-October is going to have to take precedent over the most important day of their life, you know? Yeah, no, that, that's a great way to end this episode, Ben. Oh, not quite, Michael. We've got one more. From Michael in Tasmania, the guy who started it all, he said... Hearing you read my email about my divorce and discuss my Kobe memories did indeed bring a smile to my face and thank you for your concern. I must admit, when Ben suggested the possibility of a reconciliation with my ex-wife, I almost choked with laughter, so I thought I'd follow up and set the record straight. I hope she's not listening. If she is listening, look, we're glad to take your side of the story too here. Um, No questions asked. Michael continues, going through a marriage breakup is never easy. But I found that when I went through mine, I have become a better father. I got back into fitness, and I've lost a massive 70 kilograms. I got back into playing basketball, and now I am with a truly amazing woman who compliments me in so many ways. I just wanted to clear that up. Uh, I didn't want you guys to think my life had fallen apart. So that's great news. He also sent pictures, Michael, and his body transformation is the real deal. I have no clue how much 70 kilograms is, but he's lost an awful lot of weight. Michael in Tasmania is absolutely killing it. So I'm not sure exactly what our takeaway here is, Michael. I think it's don't skip the wedding for a sporting event in 99.9% of situations, but also... At some points, if the marriage is failing, maybe you go ahead and do just prioritize sports over it and let everything crumble. What do you think? Is that our is that our official open floor advice? That's a wonderful mantra. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, great. All right, guys. Email us if we're idiots. <laughs> openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Next week, we're going to get into picking our all-star starters, Michael. Uh, you know, we talked about some of the leading vote getters. Now it's time to see who's going to come out on top. If you guys have your picks for the Western Conference starters and Eastern Conference starters, let us know. Email them, openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Now, Michael is on Instagram and Twitter at Michael Villas and Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golver on Twitter at Ben Golver. You guys can find us on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Michael, I hope you have a great weekend. We will double back next week with All-Star Talk and plenty of other stuff. Until then, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, 
We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.